0: Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you've been around uh, Wildwood this fall, you know that we are in the midst of a series that we have called Good News. This series is diving into the book of Romans, the first three chapters, to see what the good news of Jesus Christ is all about. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome, and God preserved it for us so that we might know how sinful people like you and me could be reconciled to a holy God. And that is through a, something that is called the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we've been looking at that all fall. We began several weeks ago. Today we're in the fifth installment in that series, as we'll be in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. But before we look at Romans 2 together, I want to just reflect on life a little bit with you and, and share with you some things that I've never had. I've never had measles. I've never had the mumps, and I've never had tetanus. I don't even know for sure what tetanus is, but I know that my, my arm was, was hit with shots several times in my growing up years, keeping me from getting it. These were three things that I, that I never had. Now, when I say that, uh, that's not that surprising for somebody living in, in 21st century America in the developed world. Those are diseases that largely uh, we are spared from. And they were diseases that, that I was spared from in part because I was vaccinated as a child. Now, when I, when I say that, the uh, emotion just went up for several of you. I, I, this is not an endorsement of a vaccination. I'm just telling you I was vaccinated as a child. And uh, as a part of that process, I, I never had some of these illnesses. Now, what is a Vaccination. I'm not a doctor, but from what I understand, some of you can correct me later, uh, but from what I understand, a vaccination is basically the injection of a small amount of a, a virus or a bacteria so that your body can produce antibodies that will, will fight against it for the rest of your life, thus keeping you from getting the full-blown illness. This is what a vaccination is, and many of us in this room have have had them. Now... I'm not here today to talk about health vaccinations, but I think it is important for us to think about that concept of a vaccination as it relates to spiritual things. I think it's possible for those of us who grew up in America, in a country that has a lot of of Christian ties to it, Uh, many of us grew up attending a church at some point during our younger years or we've been a part of a church for an extended period of time now, it's possible for us who have been around the things of God to have just enough of the things of God injected into our system that we are resistant to the real thing. We have just enough of Christ that we're resistant to really following Him in authentic biblical Christianity. Professor Howard Hendricks at, at Dallas Seminary would would say that often. He, he was concerned that we had in America have become inoculated to the real form of Christianity because we've been surrounded by so many little parts and pieces. It's possible because we've grown up in America or it's possible because we've grown up in a church that we can think that somehow because of those affiliations we would be protected from the wrath of God. And yet in the book of Romans chapter 2 verses 17 through 29, Paul writes to make an argument that all people, including church-going people, including religious people, and not just any religion, but the right kinds of religious people, that all people, including the religious ones, including the churchgoers, are sinful. And he makes this argument so that all people, including church-going people, would understand that our hope and our need is for a Savior, not just for membership in some kind of a club or some kind of a church. That we need a savior, and that's the point of Romans chapter two, verses seventeen through twenty-nine. And what we're going to do today is I'm going to read these verses for us, and then we're going to back up into them, and we're going to see how, in two movements, even church-going people like you and me—you might be saying, "Hey, this is my very first time to ever be here." You're calling me a church-goer already. You're right. I just did. You're here today. Uh, this is a message for all of us. Okay, Romans chapter two, verses seventeen through 29. Paul writes this letter and this is what he says. He says, "But if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God and you know his will and you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others" So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man. But from God. Now, in these verses, we see a couple of things that talk to us church going folks. And the first thing that we see here is that church people are sinners too. Church people are sinners too. We see this in verses 17 through 24 of chapter 2. But really, before we can understand fully what Paul is saying there, we need to remember the overall context of this section of the book of Romans. We've seen that this section of Romans 1 through 3 is all about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what God wants to do for us through Christ. We saw a number of weeks ago in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that Paul says, "'I'm not ashamed of the gospel or the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek.'" "...for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith." What Paul is saying there is the good news of Jesus Christ is that God wants to give to us that which we do not have on our own. God wants to give us the righteousness of God. He wants to credit it to our our account. He wants to clothe us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what God's desire is, and that's good news And the reason why that is such good news that God wants to reveal His righteousness towards us is because we have no righteousness on our own, and there's consequences for that. Verse 18 of chapter 1 says it this way, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The problem for humanity is that we have no righteousness on our own, and we have Decisions that we've made, we've wandered away from God, and we have pursued a a godless mindset in our living at different points and at different junctures, and all of that has translated to the fact that as people we are under the wrath of God, apart from Christ, that there will be judgment that will come upon all people because we are unrighteous because we have sinned, and this is the problem that has impacted all of humanity, and what Paul then does from chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20 is he wants to really define his argument that all people are genuinely sinful. That all of us have fallen short of God's glorious standard and therefore are worthy recipients of God's wrath. He's going to make that argument in different pieces. We've already seen different parts of it. From chapter 1 verse 18 through 32 what we saw was that there are segments of humanity who have totally rejected God and have pursued a a sensual set of of living and principles, trying to live totally independent from God. And that's a a demonstration of the sinfulness of humanity. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, we saw that it wasn't just in licentious living that sinfulness is expressed, but it also is even among moral people, people who try to make the right decisions and who set standards that they try to achieve and, and hold against others, that those who have even set moral standards for their lives, they can't keep the standards that they've set. Therefore it's a demonstration, it's a reminder that all people are sinful and separated from God are under his wrath apart from Christ. We've seen that so far in this book. When we get to chapter 2, verse 17 through 29, what we see is that Paul changes his argument. Instead of talking about people who want to reject God altogether, and instead of talking merely about those who are moral, he wants to talk to those who are who are religious. And not just any kind of religious, the, the right kind of religious. They're connected to the, the movements of God that he has expressed in history. They're connected to... to The Old Testament; they had the right book. He's talking here, of course, about the Jews. Now, in this section, I've I've called this "Church people are sinners too," and you might be wondering: Am I equating the church with Israel in some way? In fact, I'm not. I just think it's a good, appropriate application of the passage. There are certainly distinctions between Israel of the Old Testament and. The church today. God had a very special relationship with Israel. First of all, they were all in one nation. They were, they were a members of, of the nation of Israel. People in the church today are scattered in every nation. Because God had a relationship with this one people in one nation, He gave them some very special promises that were contingent upon their obedience. If they obeyed, God rewarded them. If they disobeyed, He disciplined them. And through them, God was going to teach the world different things about who He was and the way He operates. And through them, he was to deliver the one who would come as the Messiah. There were some differences between Israel and the Church, but the reason why I think that there is an important uh, correlation for application in this section is because the the Jews, as Paul references them in chapter two, were the religious people and the right religious people of the first century. They were the ones that could quote you chapter and verse on all of the things that pointed to Jesus from the Old Testament. And Paul writes to them, and he wants them to know, hey, just because you have a copy of the Old Testament on your coffee table, you're a sinner too. And I think the application is clear to us today. Paul writes in verse 17, and he says, if you call yourself a Jew, and he's referencing here the the people of God, the, the descendants of Israel, If you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God, in other words, you call yourself a Jew, you've got a copy of the right book, you've got a copy of the Old Testament, and you have a certain amount of pride because of that. And you know what? They should have. I mean, God had done some pretty amazing things for the nation of Israel. He had led them through the Red Sea, and He had constructed a temple where his spirit resided and he led them with a, a cloud by day and a fire by night. I mean there were a number of remarkable things that God had done for the nation of Israel. They they had a, a certain pride about their history, a certain pride about their heritage. They had the right book. They boasted in God, verse 18. They knew his will and they approved what is excellent because they were instructed from the law. They had a they had a sense of of right and wrong. They could answer all the right things. They, they, they liked all the appropriate articles on Facebook and shared all the right ones on Twitter from a moral perspective. They, they were coming from an educated position on God's perspective on the world. They, they had the right information. They had the right answers, so much so that they were able to teach others. They were a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, instructors of the foolish, teachers of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. These were the educated religious people of their day. They had the right answers. But their problem was not that they didn't have the right answers. Their problem was they could not put them into practice. Their problem was not that they didn't know what God wanted. Their problem was they couldn't do what God wanted consistently. They were sinners, just like you and me. Paul makes this quite clear in verses 21 to 24 when he says, "'You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles.'" because of you. Their problem was not that they didn't have the right information. Their problem was they couldn't live it out perfectly. Paul illustrates that by asking them a series of questions. He says, you who say don't steal, do you steal? Now, was Paul saying in that statement that the Jews were the most theft-prone people in the world? Was he saying in that 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 every Jewish person had stolen from their neighbor? I mean, was one lock not enough in Israel on your door? Did you need the deadbolt and the security system because theft was so prevalent? I mean, why, why would Paul say that you who say, do not steal, do you steal? Well, I, I think in, in part what Paul is saying is that even though you have the right answer, you might be unable to live it out perfectly all the time. He, he might be saying something like this, you, you who say, do not steal, have you ever taken something from your boss that you didn't ask for? About? You ever pushed a margin a little bit in a business deal? You ever stolen at a heart level? Not have you ever gone to prison for Grand Theft Auto, but have you ever in your heart sinned against your brother by taking something that was not your own? I think as he asks that, there were a lot of heads that were nodding. Though they knew the right answer, they had not lived it out perfectly. Then he goes on and he talks about adultery. Was, was he saying that this was the most unfaithful nation in the world? Did he single them out because there were, was more infidelity among the Jews than any other nation of the ancient world? I don't think so. I think he references this, again, pointing really to the example that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount where he says that I've, I, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks after someone who's not your spouse and lusts after them in your heart you have already committed adultery. Jesus raised the standard, and Paul is clarifying that. He says, even if you have not cheated on your spouse, many of you have wanted to. You've entertained these fantasies and these thoughts. Therefore, you're revealing that you yourselves are sinners also. He talks about the robbing of temples. That's a weird one for us. You know, Jews hated idolatry. It was one of the, uh, right there at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, they were not to have idols. But yet, many Jews would, would see that, and in the name of that law, this was common in, the, in, in, the, in ancient times, Jews would go and rob temples and then sell what they took from that to make some kind of personal profit. Paul says that's totally inconsistent. If God hates idols, destroy the darn things. Don't make a profit on them. And in these different ways, what what Paul is arguing is that the problem of the Jewish people was that they were sinners too, and they could not merely rely on their Jewishness to save them from God's wrath. They, They needed something more. He was saying that Jewish people are sinners too, and I think by application, as I've said earlier, it's appropriate for us to say that church people are sinners too. And if you look back over verses 17 through 20, I I think that we can find some parallels to some things that maybe you have experienced growing up. He says, you know, if we were to put it in words that might be a little closer to home for us, if you call yourself a Christian and you grew up inside the church and you rely on the fact that you know a lot of Bible verses and that you've got... Bibles on your coffee table and beautiful covers for your Bibles on the shelves and flip over books in your bathrooms and, and you, you boast in God because you're an American and we're Christian and you, you celebrate that at different times of the year. And it says, and if you know uh, the will of God and you approve what is excellent and you, you're a teacher, you, you've taught Sunday school and you've been able to teach the Bible to others. I mean, you've been able to take and put on a flannel graph these great deep truths of Scripture, and you've been able to share them with children so that their light goes on over their head and they begin to understand and they begin to get it. What Paul is saying is you you may have grown up in an environment where all of those things may be true about you. But then Paul asks the question from 21 to, to 24, and we could ask ourselves a question. If we feel like we can connect to the first half, what about the second? How are we doing in living out the things that we teach? Folks, I'm reminded all the time that I I, I live out in practice that much of what I know. Anybody else relate to that? See, if we've grown up around the church, we may have the right answers, but do we live it out? Here's what that is. That gap between what we know and what we live out, that, that, that gap is a reminder for you and me that we need something more than just knowledge. We need something more than just having the right information. We'll see what that is here in just a minute. But the point of these first several verses here is that churchgoers are sinners too. If if you look down the row to your left and to your right, it's a row full of sinners. And then look down and you just found another one look forward, and you've seen another. Church-going folks are sinners. And we need to remember that. You know, sometimes we begin to think that if we're a part of the right group, the right club, the right church, the right program, that somehow we're immune from the wrath of God towards sin. But the reality is that the wrath of God is revealed against how much ungodliness and unrighteousness? All of it, including that Inside of the church, sin knows no bounds and it's infected all of us. We're all people who are in need of something more. It's a problem inside the church that we need to remember, and it's also a problem outside the church. If if you're somebody here, you're new to Christianity, you're new to the church, this is your first Sunday that you've ever been here, you probably had a thought before that. Church people are all hypocrites because you think that because we go here, we think we're perfect. We don't think we're perfect. We know that we're sinners. We read verses like this on a regular basis that remind us of our need for something more. To follow Christ means not that we're perfect. It means that we acknowledge that we're not and that we have a need. Church people are sinners too. First thing we see from this passage. The second thing, though, is this. We need a savior and not a ceremony. We need a savior and not a ceremony. Paul immediately is going to transition from his conversation about the Jews and the law and what they're able to practice, and he's going to begin to talk about a very important ceremony to the average Jewish person, and that was the ceremony of circumcision. He mentions it right there at the beginning of verse 25. Circumcision was the act of cutting off the foreskin of all of the males within Judaism. It's something that God gave to the Jews in back in the time of Abraham as an outward symbol of their connection to God. It was a sign of the covenant, an external sign of the covenant. But somewhere along the way, the Jews got it twisted a little bit, which is what people do, right? Sinful people, we twist things. And God, who had always intended for us, to have an internal relationship with him, watched as the Jewish people over a number of years had, had twisted that and it had become only about the external expression of circumcision. That was the most important thing. It was so twisted up in their understanding that uh, we see uh, Rabbi Levi in ancient times would, would say this. He says in his description of a good Jew's understanding and in this first century of this. He says, in the hereafter, Abraham will sit at the entrance of Gehenna. I think this is an interesting phrase to see. You know, in, in our day, we tell stories where Peter is at the pearly gates. Um, in the ancient times, Jews would tell stories about Abraham at the gate of hell. Um, here he is, Abraham at the gate of hell. And it says, in the hereafter, Abraham will sit at the entrance of Gehenna and permit no circumcised Israelite to descend therein. What then will he do to those who have sinned very much? He will remove the foreskin from babes who died before circumcision. He will set it upon them, the sinners, and then let them descend into Gehenna. It had gotten so twisted up in Judaism of the first century that they thought it was all about circumcision. It was all about the ceremony. Those who had undergone that ceremony would be saved. Those who had not would not. That's the world that Paul is, is arguing against. And the, the thought was that circumcision was so important, it was what saved you. But Doug Moo helps us understand a little more of what uh, the Apostle Paul was trying to clarify in this section when he writes in his commentary on Romans. He says this, he says, "...in contrast to Jewish teachers who held that only a radical decision to renounce the covenant invalidated one circumcision, Paul argues that simple transgression of the law can have the same effect. In other words, your circumcision went only so far as your sinfulness. And if you sinned even one time, your circumcision was doing you no good at all, because the wrath of God was revealed against all unrighteousness. In verse 25, this is clearly seen. Paul writes and says literally in the original this is the way it would be translated For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. Circumcision is of of value if you're perfect. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes a foreskin. Think about the way that they thought of the world. If you sinned even one time, it was as if that ceremony had never happened. Paul was saying that they needed a Savior. They didn't just need a ceremony. Their circumcision was not helping them as it related to escaping the wrath of God. He goes on in verse 26 and, and 27, and he makes an argument that is similar to what he's been making throughout this book, where he sets up an example as if to say that if somebody were able to live a perfect life, that they would be saved. But but clearly, his point is never that somebody can actually do that, because in practice, we know no perfect people. Paul's point was was merely to, to argue with the Jews of his day to say that you need something more than your ceremony because you cannot live out a perfect life. First 26 and 27, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. In other words, it would be better to perfectly obey God's law than it would be to be circumcised the problem is what we just saw earlier. The church-going folks, the Jewish folks, are sinners too. Therefore, we find ourselves in great trouble. We find ourselves needing something more than just a ceremony. We find ourselves needing a Savior. Paul makes us clear in 28 and 29 that what we need is not just something on the outside, but we need something on the inside. We need a total renovation of our heart, a total change, a revolution, a revelation of God's righteousness given to us in Christ, received by faith. That is what we need. We need a spiritual renovation. He says, "...no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit." not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. We we need God to intervene. We need Him to intervene on the interior of our heart if we have any hope of avoiding the wrath of God. It's not about the ceremony. It's about the Savior. Now, we don't attribute a lot of religious significance to circumcision, do we? We just don't. In our world today and in our Protestant, Christian, Norman, Oklahoma world. I mean, there's an, a number of people that practice it, but we don't hold the same significance. But, but here's the thing. Are there any ceremonies in our world that we want to elevate to some spiritual level of, of, of dominance and importance? Is there anything on the outside of our lives that we want to say is more important than anything that is happening on the inside of our lives as it relates to our salvation? Let me give you a few examples. I might step on a few toes. I'm going to apologize in advance. But let's say you went to church camp when you were growing up. And at some point in that camp, somebody asked you if you wanted to trust Jesus, that that you would, would see your your sin burned up in front of you. So they challenge you to pick up a stick and throw it on the fire or to grab a rock and to throw it off into the wilderness. As far as the east is from the west, your sin would be removed from you. And and you at that moment threw your stick on the fire or picked up that rock and threw it off into the the wilderness. And, And for years, you have looked back on that event as the event of your salvation. Now, the night I came to Christ, I gathered up some rocks representing my sin and I set them at the foot of the cross. So I'm sympathetic with that idea. but Here's the thing. The rocks that I set at the foot of the cross are not what saved me. The ceremony of seeing that stick burned up in front of you is not what saved you. Your hope for eternity and my hope for eternity is not found in that ceremony, but it's found in Jesus Christ and what He did for you. If Jesus didn't live a perfect life, if Jesus didn't die on the cross for your sins, then you would not escape God's wrath because a stick burned on the fire. Our hope is not in our ceremony. Our hope is in our Savior. I'll give you another example. Sometimes we get wrapped around this idea of, of, of a prayer and, and praying the right words the first time that we profess our faith in Christ. And, and you might be here, you went to a Billy Graham crusade and the words were, were from Billy so you know they were right and you said those words and for all this time you've looked back on the words that you said at that moment and that is what you're trusting in, the words that you said at that moment. But here's the thing, your hope for eternity is, is not found in saying the right words. Your hope for eternity is found in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. It's found in the Savior and not the ceremony. Now, is is it bad to to, to be able to express that in prayer? Absolutely not. It's it's one of the necessary parts of life. We we confess things with our mouth that we believe in our hearts, but it wasn't the articulation of what you said or the room that you said it in. It wasn't the ceremony that saved you. It was Jesus Christ, the Savior, and what he has done for you. For others, it might be baptism, and it might be the fact that your parents, when you were a child, sprinkled water on your head. Or it might be when you went to camp and you came back and you walked forward and they put a white robe on you and they doused you in water and you looked out and everybody clapped and cheered. And you've looked back on that event for years and years and you've remembered that moment when this public expression of faith happened. And here's the thing, it wasn't that ceremony that saved you. Water is just water apart from Jesus Christ and what He did for you. Salvation would be impossible. Is baptism important? Absolutely. Is it something we remember and share and treasure? Absolutely. Is it a step of of faith following Jesus? Absolutely it is. But it's not what saves you. Our problem is so radical, we need more than a ceremony. We need a Savior. And here is what is remarkable. Knowing that. God gave us what we needed. He didn't give us a book of rituals and say, do a bunch of stuff and say a bunch of things in the right way and you're going to be okay. God knew that we needed something more significant than that. We needed a Savior. And so he sent Jesus into the world to live a perfect life, to reveal to us the love of God, and to die on the cross to receive all of the wrath that God has towards your sin and mine to absorb it on the cross so that we might have the wrath of God removed from us and then His righteousness could be revealed to us so that from the inside out we would be revolutionized and we would have a hope for a life in eternity with God. You see, our salvation is not found in the ceremony. It is found in the Savior. And we need to remember that. I want to end with a, with a story. And... Uh, is a story that that uh, uh, from this last summer, we went on vacation with some friends and and uh, we went to a place and we're staying at this place where um, all of the, the the different you know little things that you use in the bathroom they have you know sample size versions of those and so there was a bottle of body wash and there was shampoo and there was lotion and they were they were all there and uh, a friend of mine went into the to shower with the the, the supplied little bottles, and they, they opened the one that said body wash, and they put it all over their body, and they found out that it wasn't body wash at all. In fact, it was lotion. Now, can you imagine the surprise of thinking and hoping you were getting soap and you get lotion instead? That would not be fun, right? And, and the reality is that the most important thing about what you use to clean yourself with is not what is on the outside, but is what is on the inside, And I think the same point is what Paul is making in salvation. It's not about being around the right church or the right people or having the right ceremony that you've gone through in your life, but but the hope that we have for eternity is having something radically changed on the interior of our lives that happens when the righteousness of God is credited to our account. I want to ask you to stand as we close, and then we're going to sing a song in response. But I want to just have us stand, and as we stand in, in, in reverence before God, I want us to bow our heads, and I want us to pray as church people, sinful people, in need of, of a Savior. Father, we are here today as people who are in great need. Father, I, I, I know that we are sinful, not because I know everything that everybody has done. I, I don't know a tenth of it. But Father, I, I know that we're sinful because we're people and we can't even live up to the things that are the standards we set for ourselves, much less the standards set for us by you, a holy God. Father, we are, are sinful people and we are thus separated from you and would be objects of your wrath had you not intervened for us in a dramatic way. Father, you sent Jesus to die on the cross to take the wrath that we deserve, and you sent Jesus to live a perfect life so that his righteousness could be shared with us, could be revealed in us. And Father, I pray today that we would not be people who are just smarter sinners who have heard another message and who walk on, but I pray there would not be a heart in this room right now, Father, it would not be just opening up in trust and faith, receiving what you are offering us in Christ, because our hope is not found, Father, in, in a ceremony or anything we do. Our hope is found in Jesus and what he has done. And today, collectively, as we stand, our hearts united. We profess our faith and our trust in you. In Jesus'